The Phantom of the Opera was a great idea for a silent movie, but as so often happens in Hollywood, an inspired notion with impeccable production values and a masterful star turn became mired in hubris and doubt. Like its title character, whose mother rejected him at birth, the Phantom was shunned and hobbled by its creators, who feared they had wrought a stillborn thing. This is Scott McQueen. For the next hour and a half, I will be your guide through the dark places beneath the opera. There is no pure version of the Phantom of the Opera, but there are five pedigrees. First, the Los Angeles preview version of January 1925. Second, the San Francisco world premiere version of April 1925. Third, the New York general release version, first shown at the Astor Theater in New York City beginning in September 1925. Fourth, the 1929 domestic sound reissue version. That's not Lon Chaney skulking behind the reissue titles, but an unbuilt bit player, as we are watching the fifth version, the 1930 international sound reissue version for foreign markets, which is the finest surviving print. The New York general release version is the film as distributed in 1925 and appears elsewhere on this disc. Gaston Leroux's 1910 novel has several antecedents, including Georges de Maurier's 1894 novel Trilby, the tale of the mesmerist Svengali and his near supernatural domination of a young singer. More fundamentally, there is the French fairy tale of Beauty and the Beast, first put in writing in 1740. Leroux's scene is the Paris opera of the 1880s. Singer Christine Daillet is coached by a spectral voice in her dressing room. It belongs to Eric, the formed genius of musical and black arts, who has passed into legend as a ghost, the Phantom of the Opera. But the ghost is mortal and demands her love. He drives a wedge between the girl and her lover Raoul and terrorizes the opera to promote her career. Aided by an Eastern police agent who had known Eric in Persia, Raoul rescues Christine from the Phantom's lair. When Eric realizes that Christine can feel no passion but only pity for him, he sends the lovers away and dies quietly in the bowels of the opera. In the 1920s, Carl Lemley's Universal Pictures catered to the independent exhibitor, turning out inexpensive westerns, serials, and comedies with small-town appeal. But every season contained one blockbuster called a Super Jewel, an expensive spectacle that promised prestige and big bucks. The ballets were staged by Ernest Belcher, who ran a Hollywood dance school. His daughter Marge Belcher is famous as the live-action model for Disney's Snow White and her later dance partnership and marriage to Gower Champion. The corps de ballet were all Belcher students, one of whom, Rebecca Lemley, was the 16-year-old niece of Carl Lemley. Rebecca, or Beth as she was familiarly called before changing her name to Carla, was given the role of prima ballerina. spent his summers in Europe, where, according to the publicist's version, he met phantom author Gaston Leroux in 1922. Leroux gave him the book, Lemley read it, and liked it. The retiring managers are William Humphrey with mustache and Cesar Gravina. Gravina was a favorite of director Eric von Stroheim, playing Zirkow of the Junkman in the lost subplot of Greed. The new managers are bearded Bruce Covington and George B. Williams. 
Williams was the only manager re-engaged for new dialogue sequences in 1929. Character actor Lon Chaney became a superstar in the grotesque title role of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Universal's super jewel for 1923 and their biggest moneymaker. The son of deaf mutes, Chaney's homespoken pantomime became the language of a unique American performer destined to excel in the hushed world of pre-Vitaphone cinema. Possessed of a remarkable talent for theatrical makeup, Chaney was a shapeshifter who gave form to the jazz age's darkest impulses. Ugly, crippled, and unloved, his characters challenged the surface optimism of the 1920s. Chaney was a freelance player. A treatment of the Phantom was already completed by Universal's writers Bernard McConville and Jasper Spearing when newspapers reported on October 14, 1923, that Cheney was considering a contract offer from Universal. Cheney recognized the story's opportunities, pathos, pantomime, and a startling makeup. His biographer, Michael Blake, reports that on November 22nd, Cheney wired Bob's Merrill, the American publisher, asking, quote, whether or not the world's motion picture rights were available, and if so, at what price and terms, unquote. But Lon was too late. Universal had bought them a year earlier on October 13, 1922, $4,000 for silent rights, $8,000 for sound rights. By January 1924, Cheney was in New York negotiating with Universal. He wrote his business manager, Albert Grasso, quote, I was up to Universal and they wanted me to do Phantom of the Opera for $100,000. Can we do it? Look into it at once, unquote. Hunchback, he noted, had already grossed $800,000 in far and one-half months. The actress playing the attendant of Box 5 is Madame Fiorenza. All through May, Universal discussed Phantom as a possible Lon Chaney vehicle. Story department head Edward T. Lowe Jr., who had scripted The Hunchback, thought it a perfect role for Chaney. Lowe agreed with Mel Brown that the romance needed to be emphasized. In a separate memo, Brown complained that mysteries did not do well at the box office, but called the role unnatural for Chaney. Bernard McConville wrote enthusiastically to Jasper Spearing on May 8th, agreeing that the part was perfect for Cheney, but he cautioned, if we do it, for God's sake, let's not botch it. At Universal's May 17th sales conference in New York, it was announced that Cheney was aboard for an unnamed picture. By the first week of July, the Phantom was official, with production to start August 1st. Then came the first botch. Rupert Julian was assigned to direct. Let's put him out. Rupert Julian had been at Universal since 1915 as a director and actor. He made a sensation during World War I, directing and playing the title role in The Kaiser, The Beast of Berlin. When Eric von Stroheim was fired five weeks into merry-go-round in 1923, utility man Julian was sent into mop-up and was elevated as Universal's prestige director. William Taroller, with a nasty crepe beard, not only plays the orchestra conductor, but was a former conductor of New York's Metropolitan Opera and the Hollywood Bowl. Universal would recall him to conduct the choruses for their 1943 remake of Phantom. Another alumnus of the Met, William von Wiemetal, staged the operatic scenes, and he too would be recalled in 1943. There's Carla Lemley, held aloft at the apex of the formation. She recalled to me that two weeks were spent rehearsing the Faust ballets with live orchestra.
These ballerinas are not Belcher pupils, but bit players. The demonic head belongs to the dragon Fafner from Richard Wagner's opera Siegfried, first performed in 1876. Actress Ruth Clifford described Rupert Julian to Kevin Brownlow, quote, he looked very severe. He was extremely dignified and was always beautifully groomed, a little flower in his buttonhole, and he was very, very strict, unquote. From his photographs, Julian looks to have spent as many hours styling his workaday persona as Cheney did fashioning his false faces. This is the only glimpse left of Olive Anne Alcorn as La Sorelli, the première danseuse, a showgirl and dancer with a handful of screen credits, including Chaplin's Sunnyside. Her part in Phantom was simply decorative. Julian's sartorial pretensions made him almost a caricature of a silent movie director, but directorial talent couldn't be pulled on like a pair of jodhpurs or assumed like a new name. He had been born Percival T. Hayes in New Zealand in 1879, his father a sheep rancher and pub owner in Winara. Percy attended Marist College, but rather than become a Roman Catholic priest, he sold tea, drove a donkey engine, and prospected for gold before rechristening himself and running away with the show. Following service in the Boer War, Julian married the New Zealand actress Elsie Jane Wilson. They arrived in Hollywood in 1913 and both went to work at Universal. His first film roles were villains for director Lois Weber, a name we shall encounter later in the Phantom Saga. The Spearing McConville treatment subverted LaRue's premise. It detailed the flirtations of Christine Daillet with the Phantom just another troublesome suitor. Julian brought in Elliot J. Clausen, his scenario writer since 1916. Lon Chaney likely approved, as he and Clausen had co-written a 1914 Universal Western, The Tragedy of Whispering Creek, and Clausen would later write two of Chaney's MGM features, The Road to Mandalay and West of Zanzibar. Clausen stuck to LaRue, but hid his ignorance of the opera's physical layout by piling the first draft with minutiae that he culled from studio researcher Maida Claire Stern. Stern, a Lemley relative and later John Ford's script girl, had uncovered the details in an 1879 issue of Scribner's magazine. Joseph Bouquet is played by Polish-born Bernard Siegel. The prop head he is manipulating belongs to John the Baptist for the opera Salome. This is an anachronism, as our story is laid circa 1890, and Richard Strauss's opera did not premiere until 1905. Concurrent with Clausen's scenario, C. Richard Wallace was assigned to develop comedy business. He remembered an acquaintance named Ben Carré, a Frenchman who had worked at the opera and was now a Hollywood art director. Wallace brought Carré in to consult. Though Carré knew LaRue's book well, a long discussion with Julian's production team was unproductive, largely because of Carré's poor English. To make his points, the Frenchman rendered 24 charcoal sketches, aware that LaRue had created his descriptions of the cellars from whole cloth. Carré did likewise, assuring Julian that not one in a million had ever seen the opera underground. Carré left, expecting to be recalled to supervise construction of the sets. He would not see the Phantom until the 1970s, only then learning that his designs had been slavishly deployed. By the 1970s, history had erroneously accorded Phantom's design to Charles Danny Hall, art director of The Cat and the Canary, Dracula, and Frankenstein. Not true. The error springs from the fact that Danny's brother, Archie Hall, was in charge of Phantom's set construction. As a matter of fact, Danny Hall was working with Chaplin on the gold rush all through this period. Clausen's reliance on Carré peppers the revised script. Comments like, quote, this is a Ben Carré set, and, quote, Carré is working out the details, unquote. 
E.E. Shealy and Sidney Ullman would be given full credit for art direction. The San Francisco World premiere print bore the eccentric on-screen credit, Sellers Executed by Ben Carey. But by the New York General Release version, he was lumped into art and architecture with Shealy, Ullman, and Archie Hall. But make no mistake, if movies are required to have auteurs, then Phantom has two, Lon Chaney and Ben Carey. Carey would do it all over again for the Marx Brothers, as production designer of A Night at the Opera in 1935. Richard Wallace is to be lauded for bringing Curry onto the film. His comedy scenes merit a stoning, and what a genius clown to enact them, Hungarian Snitz Edwards as prop man Florine Papillon. He's one of those sticky comedians like El Brendel in the early 30s, whose popularity is incomprehensible today. Wasted in the much-reduced role of Simon Bouquet is English actor Gibson Gowland on the left. Championed by von Stroheim in Blind Husbands, his signature role was the remarkable lead of McTeague in Greed. Someone seems to have liked the tag team of the burly Gowland and the Elfin Edwards, and they repeated their Mud and Jeff routine in MGM's The Mysterious Island, shot the following year but not released until 1929, and after enduring a gestation as tough as The Phantoms. The film includes many notes and letters. Mrs. Sturkey in the publicity department penned Christine's notes. The Phantom's messages were to be photographed in color, lettered by Jack Lawton in spidery red ink on black-bordered paper provided by Ralph Slosser. Lawton was a sometime bit player who became Universal's location manager. Slosser would be an assistant director on such pictures as House of Dracula and She-Wolf of London. The Phantom's messages were ultimately shot in black and white, those we see here were redrafted for legibility and rephotographed in 1929. Carlotta's mother is played by Virginia Pearson. In the teens, Pearson had a brief vogue as a second-string Theta Bauer. Judging by her makeup, Virginia hasn't gotten word that the vamp cycle is over. She was bankrupt by 1924 and settling for small parts. She was also in Cheney's 1928 gangster drama, The Big City. In all 1925 versions, Pearson was originally Carlotta herself. The domestic sound reissue version split the role in two and cast singer Mary Fabian as Carlotta and Hal Roach regular Faye Holderness as her shrewish mother. The international sound reissue version retains Pearson's 1925 histrionics, but title cards change her into the newly minted mother. Faye Holderness's dialogue can be heard in the audio gallery of this disc, and you can see her as Oliver Hardy's battle-axe wife in Hog Wild. More about the sound version later. Ascending to Heaven is Mary Philbin. She was born in Chicago in 1903, a neighbor of Carl Lemley's brother Joseph. She had been runner-up in an Elks Beauty contest. Joseph Lemley sent her picture to his brother, and 16-year-old Mary was given a universal contract. She was not a natural performer. She literally seemed to belong to the 19th century, a quality that could be molded by a sensitive director like Stroheim or Edward Sloman. But her lack of independent training was a real handicap when her director was a hack like Rupert Julian. On the right is Norman Carey, born Arnold Kaiser in Rochester, New York in 1894. He was an audience favorite following leading roles in The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Merry-Go-Round. A limited performer, he came by his martial bearing honestly as an Annapolis graduate, and his good looks did the rest. A down-to-earth friendly man, he was well liked by co-workers, especially his leading ladies, more than one of whom sighed when recalling him 60 years later. 
his career ended with the coming of sound. Cheney was responsible for cameraman Charles Van Anger, ASC, being brought over from Warner Brothers. Phantom had barely begun shooting in mid-October when the clash of two intractable egos occurred. In interviews with Kevin Brownlow, Rudy Belmer, and Richard Kazarski, Van Anger told the same tale. Quote, it was a terrific strain because Cheney and Julian wouldn't talk to each other. I had to be the messenger boy. Rupert would say, tell Lon to do this. And I'd go over and tell Lon, he wants you to do this. And Lon would say, tell him to go and screw himself. I'll do it the way I want to do it. Now that went on the whole picture. He wouldn't listen to Julian. He did what he wanted. Can you imagine Julian telling Lon Cheney how to act? Unquote. Julian's wife, Elsie Jane Wilson, herself a former director, was on the set and on the payroll, ostensibly in charge of Mary Philbin's wardrobe and styling. Van Anger recalled her as, quote, a great big red-headed woman, a very wonderful woman. She was the one who kept Julian straight, unquote. She was outspoken and cheerful and well-liked by the crew, who appreciated her belittling her husband. Van Anker told Richard Kazarski, quote, Julian was a barber from Australia, and she used to say to him something about, don't forget, you are just a barber, or something like that. That would burn him up, unquote. It delighted the crew, who called him shaving a haircut behind his back. At the end of one particularly difficult scene, someone shouted out, next, throwing the entire company into a state of suppressed hysteria. Rumors that Cheney and Julian actually exchanged blows are unconfirmed, but Norman Carey actually did try to run Julian over. Said Van Anger, quote, We had two cameras set up on a platform on the back street, and Norman Carey was on a big white horse. Julian said something through the microphone that Carey didn't like, and Carey rode this horse right up on the platform after him, knocked the cameras over and everything. I told Rupert that if he wasn't careful, someone was going to drop a lamp on him. Well, it's lunchtime. We walk on the set, and there's not a soul about, and as he walked in, it was just like fate. A piece of board fell down from one of the sets, hit him on the head, and scratched his face. You have chosen wisely, mademoiselle. When the sound version was shown early in 1930, Lon Chaney had not yet made a talkie, and Universal could not legally dub his voice. Said Variety, Quote, Cheney is never seen talking, but what is supposed to be his voice is heard on a number of occasions, unquote. They gave the party line that this shadow was supposed to be a lieutenant of the Phantom drolling out the master's orders, but noted, quote, unless the audience is alert, these quick shots may be taken for Cheney, unquote. Well, silly, that's exactly what Universal intended. All of the 1930 ads carry the disclaimer, quote, Mr. Cheney's portrayal is silent, unquote. The master shall lead you farther yet to heights of immortal glory. Henceforth, your life belongs to him. What shall I do? Be prepared to go. Be prepared. His spirit will take form and command your love. The stentorian voice remains unattributed, 
but it is likely either Edwards Davis or Philip Smalley. More later about the sound version. Don't blame Norman for his hilariously inappropriate reaction at hearing Mary flirt with a strange man. This film passed through the hands of at least four film editors, and the bad placement of this shot was remarked on by critics, even in 1925. Two 1925 musical scores for The Phantom exist. Both are compilation scores. Both contain 56 cues. Both use Maurice Byron's second movement of prelude to a mystery drama as The Phantom's theme. One is a full published score compiled by Gustav Hinrichs with Max Winkler, with four original cues by Hinrichs and an original but unattributed love theme. This is the score that was conducted by Eugene Conte at the Astor Theater in New York. The other, prepared solely by Max Winkler in cue sheet form, draws largely from different sources and uses Because You Say Goodbye by Saul Levy as its love theme. Winkler's suggested timings run the film out to a ponderous 114 minutes. There is no record of the first score of Phantom for the San Francisco world premiere version. That score was by Joseph Carl Briel, famous for his score for Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. Like his music for Griffith's 1915 feature, Brielle's Phantom score was probably compiled rather than composed. Music was performed constantly on the Phantom set during shooting. The auditorium scenes utilized the on-camera orchestra staffed by real musicians under William Taroller's baton. Dramatic scenes used a small trio, including pianist Frank Lydell and violinist Val Dixon. You can see them at work in the photo gallery on this disc. While the practice was common to establish emotional mood for performers, Rupert Julian had a brainstorm and announced that the set music would become the actual score played in the theater. Quote, I believe this is the ideal way of arranging a musical score, he crowed. In fact, it will make the picture almost an opera, unquote. It's a curious comment that is consistent with Julian's direction of the movie. All of this beautifully appointed theatrical craft placed before cameras that would merely transcribe the puppet master's proscenium staging. Presumably, much of the onset music was drawn from Charles Gounod's 1859 opera Faust, which features prominently in the story. Despite the temptation to see Faust's tale of a pact with the devil as a counterpoint to Phantom's plot, the opera's narrative does not reconcile with LaRue's. Faust was simply the most popular production at the Paris Opera in this period. Carlotta's synchronized scenes are intercut with sequences shot five years earlier of Mary Philbin, the managers, and the opera house. The soprano is 28-year-old Mary Fabian, replacing Virginia Pearson for the 1930 sound version. Born in Birmingham, Alabama, Fabian started in vaudeville, appeared with several opera companies, and founded her own in the American South to stage opera in English. In the Women's Army Corps during World War II, she remained in Europe after the war to help rebuild Austria. Phantom was her only movie appearance. She died in Vienna in 1973. A custom stage was built to contain the set of the opera house. At a time when much studio construction was makeshift, this was a steel frame building set in concrete footings, erected by the Llewellyn Iron and Steel Works. As a concise replica of the real auditorium, 75 feet high, 360 feet long by 145 feet wide, it had to be durable enough to bear the weight of tier boxes and of hundreds of people. It proved so big that Van Anger had to open the loading door and place his camera on the hillside outdoors to take his long shots. Officially known as Stage 28, the Phantom stage has appeared memorably over the years in everything from the 1943 remake of Phantom to thoroughly modern Millie 
and remains in use today. The chandelier is long gone, the gilt has been whitewashed, but the stage and tear boxes still stand like sentinels, quiet observers of 21st century Hollywood. Rupert Julian's handling of the chandelier's fall confirmed for cameraman Charles Van Anger that his director was an incompetent. It didn't actually fall, but was lowered slowly by a pulley while the cameraman undercranked at around eight frames per second. Van Anger told Kevin Brownlow that he lit the top of the stage with Cooper Hewitt mercury vapor lamps so that when the set lights were extinguished, there would remain a soft ambient glow. Quote, Julian said he wanted everything to go black. Well, you know what would happen if you dropped the chandelier on all those people and you don't see it, unquote. Van Anger was playing with a solid blue poker chip as the lighting was roughed in. Julian barked, quote, you've got too much light on this. It's supposed to go black. Let me see your blue glass, unquote. He asked for the monochromatic viewer that was used to judge contrast. Van Anger said, quote, I handed him this poker chip and he put it to his eye and said, just what I wanted. He couldn't see a goddamn thing, unquote. Van Anger was brought back in 1929 to film the new sequences. Notice that the house lights flicker on and off in the old footage, while in the 1929 footage, they are on dimmers. These cutaways of the Phantom are not Lon Chaney, but a double newly shot in 1929. Even in the 1925 footage, Chaney is unknotting a single hank of rope, which we are asked to believe restrains several tons of chandelier. Phantom shooting schedule dragged on for 10 weeks. Most of Cheney's scenes were completed by mid-November. As 1925 dawned, Julian had exposed 350,000 feet of film at a cost of over half a million dollars. The inspiration for this fictional happening was a much less spectacular but still tragic reality. In 1896, one of the chandelier's counterweights did break loose during performance, killing a woman seated on the fourth level. assistant director in charge of marshalling these hundreds of stampeding extras was Robert Ross, later a unit manager at Warner Brothers on pictures like Dark Victory. Certainly there was an entire core of anonymous assistant directors on a big picture like this. Charles Van Anker recalled to Rudy Belmer that Joe Pasternak was another one of the young second assistants on the set, the same Joe Pasternak who would later save the post-Lemley Universal as producer of the Deanna Durbin musical pictures. This is Arthur Edmund Carew playing the mysterious character called the Persian. We'll talk later of the changes made to this character's identity. Carew was born Jan Fox in Armenia in 1884. He was Svengali in the 1923 film of Trilby and is best remembered for creepy roles in The Cat and the Canary, Dr. X, and Mystery of the Wax Museum. Carew committed suicide in 1937. There are imagistic links between this phantom and the films of Jean Cocteau, Consider how Cocteau used mirrors as gateways between life and death in Orpheus. His 1946 film, Beauty and the Beast, builds on Phantom with its trip on horseback to a fantastic world, a gloomy lair ruled by a hideous, lovesick outcast, the prepared bedroom 
and so on. But as critic Carlos Clarence has remarked, quote, Cocteau knows the value of his symbols, and those at Universal did not know the value of theirs, unquote. It's as if Cocteau absorbed Julian's stilted prose and transmuted it into poetry. Don't be afraid. No harm shall come to you, Christine. The monster is waiting. Walk to the mirror. Again, the director throws away what should have been a visually thrilling scene. Here is how Elliot Clausen, the writer, conceived it. The glass begins to quiver. A dozen images of Christine are seen, all quivering. Terrified, Christine grasps blindly at the long white hanging beside the mirror. She disappears through the mirror and is gone. The Phantom's appearance, as initially staged, revealed him riding the counterweight of the mechanism that moves the mirror, shooting up from the cellar to the landing to meet Christine. Less was more. It was deleted during previews in January 1925. You can see it in the trailer elsewhere on this disc. The tentative hand, an invention of the screenwriter, not the director, is a much more worthy entrance. Cheney had to play much of his role masked. LaRue described the mask only as black. Cheney devised a benign, white ceramic half-face with painted eyes like a porcelain doll childish, almost jolly cheeks. The incongruity of this parody of a human face is uncanny enough, but that wisp of linen trailing over the mouth hints at something hidden and hideous. He designed not one, but a series of masks, with subtle differences that the audience is never aware of, almost like replacement heads in puppetoon animation. Chiefly, as we will see later, the eyes can be cut away to allow Cheney's own facial gestures to animate the mask. It's as ingenious a makeup job as the Phantom's death head. His body gestures are submissive, designed to cajole and reassure. A subjective shot from Christine's point of view is racked out of focus to indicate her vertigo. It's as if she and we are falling asleep and what follows is as a dream. The descent to the Phantom's underworld is as surely to the subconscious of the mind as to the subcellars of the opera. Until the last minute recutting, her adventures underground were revealed in flashback, adding to the mood of reverie, a nightmarish recovered memory. Universal previewed the movie in Los Angeles in January 1925. Editorial notes dated January 6th mentioned phoning Grauman about titles and close-ups of Cheney. This is likely the Los Angeles exhibitor, Sid Grauman. One of his theaters was the likely site of the first preview. Changes in pacing are indicated as well as wholesale cuts. The intertitles at this time are marked as temporaries. They are awkwardly written and frequently unclear. Benjamin de Casser, a prolific poet and paramount title writer, had been brought from New York in November to write Phantom's titles. Subsequent finished negative titles are quite different and superior. The finished titles were credited to Walter Anthony, a Hollywood veteran. 
From the finished titles, we can summarize the continuity of the Tenrio Los Angeles preview version. After establishing the opera house and a ballet interlude, Raoul and Philippe are introduced during a long excerpt from Faust. We meet the new managers and Carlotta presents the Phantom's first note. Florine, the ballerinas, the Persian, and Joseph Bouquet are introduced. Carlotta sings Marguerite and the voice first speaks to Christine. The managers confront the keeper of box five, Joseph is found murdered, and Simon swears vengeance. Christine triumphs in the trio from Faust, and the voice speaks again, promising to take form and command her love. The opera's groom reports that Cesare, a black stallion, has been stolen from the stables. Simon rants about his murdered brother. We meet Christine's aunt, Mama Valerius. Christine and Raoul tryst at Viroflay, and she explains her father's promise to send the angel of music. The Phantom warns the managers that Christine must replace Carlotta or else. Back at Viroflay, Christine prays at her father's grave while the Phantom plays the violin. During Faust, Carlotta sings to bring down the chandelier. Christine passes through the mirror, meets the Phantom, and vanishes. Raoul receives her note, and they meet at the masked ball. When they escape to the roof, Christine tells her story in flashback. If you look at the New York general release version elsewhere on this disc, you will see there are chemical fades into and out of black during the rooftop sequence, marking the points where the first version positioned her trip to the cellars and the unmasking. The flashback told, the lovers escape from the roof, and the phantom exits from the masked ball. Christine is abducted from the stage. Raoul and the Persian descend to the cellars and stumble into the torture chamber. Philippe is drowned in the Black Lake, the torture chamber is activated, and Simon marshals the mob. Christine's trial begins with the scorpion and the grasshopper. Incidentally, the only time in the film's career that it was presented with an intermission was the world premiere in San Francisco. It occurred here, just after the Phantom leads Christine into his chambers. Now came the original ending. Christine agrees to wed Eric if he will save Raoul and the Persian from the water torture. Quote, your love for Raoul gives you strength to sacrifice yourself. Such love rebukes my disbelief in God, unquote, announces the Phantom. The men are released. Quote, your pity has broken me. Your kiss will be my redemption, unquote, says Eric. Christine kisses him on the forehead. Overcome with emotion, Eric is racked by another fatal heart seizure. Quote, Christine has saved your life but she has saved my soul. Persian, tell your master for whom you tracked me that Eric did one good deed and then escaped." Unquote. He goes to the organ and stumbles through Don Juan triumphant. Quote, your wedding march, Christine, my requiem. Unquote. He falls backward over the organ bench, dead of a heart attack. Simon and the mob enter, 
Raul leads Christine to the street and his waiting carriage for a romantic clinch, fade out. This was pretty grim stuff for 1925. While Universal worried the story was too scary, Clausen kept the novel's grand guignol intact, including a crucial graveyard scene. The Phantom lures Christine to a country cemetery at midnight. While she prays at her father's grave, the Phantom plays on her father's violin. When Eric realizes that Raoul has followed, he rolls skulls at him in the moonlight. A note on the revised script reads, quote, sequence in the graveyard at Paros is eliminated as a result of the decision at the story conference. It seems unfortunate that the pictorial value of the graveyard should be lost, unquote. Clausen must have fought for the scene, and it would be filmed, but cut following the Los Angeles preview. Cheney's performance was the magnet, and that was enough then as now. As cadenced as dance and as communicative as classical mime, he uses every part of his body to register emotion through gesture, stride, stance, facial expression. There is not a false moment anywhere in it. He gives the film rhythm, something that it otherwise lacks, and with that rhythm comes life. It's the one truly realized performance in the film and it is one of the great performances of silent cinema. Here, Cheney is wearing the solid mask with its lifeless painted doll eyes. Not the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, it has taken Christine an entire reel to arrive at this brilliant conclusion. On the cutback, the mask appears angry as Cheney's own eyes and brow are exposed. And of course, Cheney's eyes are made up not as the Phantom's eyes, but as the eyes of the mask. When Christine swoons, the mask appears to change yet again with an expression of tenderness in the face. If there were limits to Cheney's range, it had more to do with his choice of roles than his mannerisms. Cheney had one basic portrait, the twisted outcast longing to be loved, portrayed by life, whose suffering and isolation unleash destructive fury against society. The role of Eric is the apogee of this arc, for LaRue's phantom is nothing less than bright Lucifer himself, the most beloved of angels who revolts against heaven and is cast into hell. The symbols are all there, the cellars is Hades, the opera house the firmament, the black lake the river Styx. Just as the beast would usher beauty across the threshold in Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, the Phantom carries his bartered bride to an anointed love nest. Studio manager Julius Bernheim had sent his agents to Europe to procure 19th century furnishings. One trophy solved a sticky script detail, the bed the Phantom provides for Christine. Clausen had written, quote, this is an extraordinary bed, a dramatized bed, something which does not exist, unquote. Actually it did in the estate of the French dancer, Gabby Deslis. The whole point of Eric's pursuit of Christine is seduction. Eric has prepared this room as a bridal suite complete with wedding veil. 
This is the bed in which the demon lover intends to consummate his unholy matrimony. Le Matin is the real Parisian newspaper for which Gaston Leroux had been a foreign correspondent. With the cream of Parisian society dead and maimed by tons of airborne chandelier, what is the morning headline? Christine Daillé disappears. I guess this is the legacy of the revolution. Pity the working girl, let the upper classes eat cake. Even stranger, the opera will immediately reopen with the chandelier back in position. By 1950, when this master print was made, nitrate decomposition had already disfigured this section. Photoplay Productions has replaced the decomposed scenes from an alternate 16-millimeter source in the UCLA Film and Television Archives. In the margin of the script, someone wondered nervously if the bridal bed should be more of a couch, quote, afraid of censors, unquote, they wrote. How appropriate the bed in which the notorious Gabby Deslis conquered many a man and monarch. Its Rococo distractions veiled the obvious. Sex and death would remain this bed's legacy. 25 years later, amid its guilt and saddened splendors, silent movie diva Norma Desmond would slash her wrists in Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. Mary Philbin recalled to me her mother was with her on the set at all times. Mrs. Philbin knew her place and never interfered with the director or offered an opinion to anyone, including her 21-year-old daughter. Mary was a devoted daughter, perhaps too dutiful. She fell in love with Paul Koner, a bright young producer at Universal. Koner was mad about Mary, and they became engaged. He supervised her big pictures following Phantom, the man who laughs and loved me in the world is mine. But the engagement was broken. Spurious Hollywood stories would have Mary stepping out with other fellows and breaking Paul's heart. But the truth was more fundamental and much more heartbreaking. Mary's family were Irish Catholics from the American Midwest. Koner was a Czechoslovakian Jew. Mary broke off the engagement at her parents' request. Mary Philbin never married and took care of her parents in the little house on Fairfax Avenue in Hollywood that her movie money had bought in the 1920s. As Mary retired at the venerable age of 26, Paul Koner was at the threshold of a long career as one of the most successful and respected agents in Hollywood. I was visiting Mary in that same little house on Fairfax in 1989 when she learned of Koner's death. A solemn sadness came over her, a world of regret flickering in her eyes. Sometime later, Koner's office at the talent agency he founded was dismantled. Mary's love letters to Paul were found in his desk, where he had kept them close to hand for 60 years. Charles Van Anger described to both Richard Kazarski and Kevin Brownlow how Julian dawdled over the sequence that follows. He was convinced that Rupert took a lecherous interest in Mary. Said Van Anger, quote, she was the skinniest girl I ever saw, a wonderful girl and very pretty, but she patted her legs. Remember where she takes the mask off Cheney and falls down on the steps and her skirt goes up? Well, we take a shot of Mary laying there not doing a goddamn thing on these steps, and Julian would go up and give her a feel, you know, fix her leg and fix this. And we did this goddamn thing about 32 times. And I said, Rupert, what the hell are you doing? One is like the other, and if the scene is over three feet long on the screen, that's a lot. He said, well, I don't like the lighting. And I said, well, that's the lighting you're going to get, brother. You've liked the lighting the last 30 times, and that's the way it's going to be. I'm not going to take it again. 
We waste time and at the end of the day, they come up to me and say, what makes you so slow? So we went to the office of studio manager Julius Bernheim and we handed out. All right, he says to Julian, we'll run it on the screen and if it's no good, we'll take it again. Well, we didn't take it again, unquote. It has been said that Cheney directed all of his own scenes. The unmasking suddenly uses a variety of camera angles and match cutting alien to the proscenium style of the film, strongly suggesting that someone other than Julian was calling the shots. Van Anger confirmed that Cheney ignored Julian and did as he pleased. This would have to include placement of the camera for a pivotal sequence like this, as the entire effect is controlled by Cheney. The removal of the mask was cleverly thought out. It allows a double shock. The audience beholds the horror first, and remains in suspense because the girl does not see what we do. Apprehension, shock. Renewed apprehension, then a secondary shock. The hard form mask, fastened by a string, would be unworkable as she must slip it off, quickly, cleanly, in one gesture, without damaging the death's head makeup beneath. The solution is yet another mask, made of soft cloth, that Mary Philbin can gingerly slide off of his face, so quickly that again the audience is never aware of the sleight of hand. No one seems to have thought through the action of Eric's jacket sleeves. Their continuity rises and falls with his wrath, more so here than in the New York general release version. Also, the discarded mask has somehow vanished from the room. Having the Phantom out of focus recalls the subjective, racked focus that accompanied his first encounter with Christine, almost like a variation on a melody. It suggests her fear and vertigo. In a practical sense, it allows Cheney to approach dangerously close to the lens. Using the short focal length lens protects the makeup from betraying any seams at this close distance, and at the same time makes us strain to resolve his fantastic jack-o'-lantern head. If you compare this version of the unmasking with the New York general release version elsewhere on this disc, it is clear that the angles here are ever so slightly off and slightly less powerful. The movie print audiences saw in the theater was made directly from camera negative. Quality duplicate negatives were not possible in the 1920s, and a second camera always rolled to make a second negative for overseas. Additionally, it was common to save or make alternate takes to keep in abeyance should anything happen to the main negative. Milton Brittenbecker, ASC, operated second camera on Phantom, and the version we are watching is likely from his camera. Stephen S. Norton, ASC, was another of Van Anger's camera operators. Cheney tailored his makeup to film. With cameraman friends like Virgil Miller, he tested lenses, color sensitivity, viewing distance. He said, quote, it's an art, not magic. In the Phantom of the Opera, I achieved the death's head of that role without wearing a mask. It was the use of paints in the right shades and the right places, not the obvious parts of the face. It's all a matter of combining paints and lights to form the right illusion, unquote. It was more complicated than that. Cheney rearranged his physiognomy turning the human face inside out. His phantom is an exoskeleton. The contours of his cheekbones were built up with cotton and collodion. An exaggerated skull cap raised the dome of his skull several inches, his ears glued flat to his head. 
The sockets of the eyes were heavily darkened, including the eyebrows, with white highlights above the cheeks to suggest the turning of skeletal bone in the socket. Jagged false teeth held the mouth open in a ghoulish rictus. His upper lip was rolled under, and grease paint changed the contours of the mouth to minimize the lower lip. His nose was built up with putty or cotton, the nostril holes painted black. The final touch is Van Anger told Kevin Brownlow, quote, he had two wires on his nose that pulled it up, and sometimes it would bleed like hell. We never stopped shooting. He would suffer with it, unquote. Eric experiences chest palpitations. Figuratively, Christine has broken his heart, and this romantic gesture literally sets up the thrombosis that would kill the Phantom in the Los Angeles preview version. You will notice at the end of the sequence, just at the fade out, a flash in the doorway at the back of the set, as if a stagehand mistakenly walks in front of a light. This does not happen in the New York general release version, another confirmation that these are second best takes. Natural color photography was just becoming commercially viable in the early 1920s. Clausen's scenario recommended not only what conventional color tints should be used, but indicated all sequences in the auditorium and on the grand staircase for Prisma, a two-color process developed by William Van Doren Kelly. Prisma color may have been used for some sequences, but the rival technicolor process was, with Edward Estabrook supervising chromatic photography. It is unclear exactly how much Technicolor was in the final film. Cross-referencing original reviews confirms that the masked ball, the ballets, the Faust sequences, and most, if not all, of the auditorium shots were in color for the New York opening. However, the San Francisco world premiere version used color only for the masked ball, the Valpurgis Night Ballet, and the now-deleted Faust extract, where the devil is invoked. Additionally, during reshoots, a Technicolor epilogue was made, a single shot of the honeymoon that appeared only in the world premiere print in San Francisco. Technicolor's own records from the mid-1930s indicate 497 feet, which would last between five and one-half to six and one-half minutes on screen, depending on projection speed. This is at odds with the Harrison's Report's review of the sound version, which states 17 minutes of color for both 1930 and 1925. This supports the belief that Prismacolor made up some of the difference, possibly for the opening foyer and ballet which contemporary reviews called, quote, weak and washed out, unquote, as compared to the mass ball. Technicolor at this time was highly experimental. It used only two primary colors, red-orange and blue-green. A beam splitter camera exposed two color separation records on a single strip of black and white negative. Technicolor's main advantage over Prismacolor was that exposures were made simultaneously rather than successively. Film speed was slow, and getting enough light for exposure was a real problem. Most Technicolor work had been done in blazing sunlight. Phantom was Technicolor's big test with artificial light on a large stage. It's kind of like the talking dog. You're impressed not at all by what it says, merely that it talks at all. Technicolor prints were double cemented. 
two films, one toned red and one toned green, were fused together in register. Prints tended to buckle and scratch, causing no end of mischief for projectionists. actor Ray Coulson, who had played the King's Jester in Doug Fairbanks' Robin Hood. Have Cap and Bells will travel. When Phantom was reissued in 1930, Technicolor had changed to dye transfer printing. Similar to lithography, it is one of these imbibition prints by which the mass ball sequence has survived. The 1930 talking version proper is a lost movie. Its soundtrack survives and has been used for the auxiliary track of this presentation, synchronized as intended for two-thirds of the common footage. The remaining third has been re-engineered for music only. statuary were created by 11 sculptors and artists who worked for six weeks under Ernest Alfred Yarby-Smith, an artist and instructor at the University of California. The Paris skyline is painted on glass. In 1929, the lover's tryst in Apollo's Lyre was completely refilmed as a spoken event. Concise titles were conflated to excruciating prattle, captured in a single agonizing camera take. The New York Times said Phantom's talking sequences were, quote, for the most part, slow and stupid, unquote. Another review stated, quote, with the bad recording that accompanies them, the results can be called breath-talking, unquote. Are you sure we haven't been followed? No, no. We're all alone. Moving Picture World commented in 1925, quote, the most striking color effect is where the phantom in flaming red, with his cloak outstretched like bat wings, climbs on a statue and listens to the conversation of the lovers, unquote. This startling effect, unseen since 1925, was originally achieved with the Hanshiegel process, in which single colors were transferred to the release print with a specially prepared printing matrix. Max Winkler's performance notes for the 1925 musical scores asked the conductor to hit hard the Hanshiegel color effect on the rooftop. Winkler wrote, quote, The Phantom appears from time to time in a fiery red costume. During these appearances, which are all of extreme shortness, the timpani man should be instructed to produce crescendo timpani rolls, and if possible, designate certain members of your orchestra to play the first and second bar of the Phantom theme, ad lib, double forte without paying any attention whatsoever to the progress of the love theme which is being played. This is a good moment to discuss how the part talking version came about. Victor Hugo's The Man Who Laughs would be Universal's big follow-up to Phantom. With its deformed protagonist's perpetual grin, this was Lon Chaney country for sure. Even though his makeup was approved and shooting set, Chaney walked off The Man Who Laughs 
perhaps sensing a repeat of the confusion that had crippled Phantom. Producer Paul Koner and director Paul Laney plugged the void with Conrad Veidt. Cheney, back at Metro, plugged his voided grin into London after midnight. Universal's first all-talky, Melody of Love, was released just as the return of the Phantom was announced for sound in October 1928. 20-year-old Carl Limley Jr. would produce, Paul Laney would direct, and Cheney's surrogate, Conrad Veidt, would make a convenient opera ghost. Gaston LaRue loved our movie, declared the studio. He wrote a sequel before he died. Truth was, he wrote nothing. And on March 14, 1929, Universal tossed the widow LaRue $3,000 for sequel rights. Conrad Veidt finished his Universal contract in silence in Paul Laney's The Last Performance, co-starring Mary Philbin and The Phantom Stage. By April 10th, urgent queries flew between California and New York. Can we dub a voice for Lon Chaney? The lawyers said no. May press releases promised a sequel, even as trade ads announced the original film's return in synchronized sound. Norman Carey returned from England to face death by dialogue at Universal City. Mary Philbin faced a fate worse than dialogue. Quote, they wanted actresses who could sing, and I wasn't a singer, unquote, she ruefully told me in 1989. The Phantom in Sound was the last the public saw or heard from her. Norman braved two poverty row talkies, and then he too faded to black. For your listening horror, this full dialogue sequence can be accessed in the audio gallery. Joseph Bouquet and the ballerinas were looped with synthetic dialogue. Scenes not involving the Phantom were restaged for dialogue, badly directed in single one-take setups by Ernst Lemley, the 28-year-old son of Uncle Carl's brother Siegfried. Despite this help from the Lemley family, Ernst only made two additional features, signing them Ernst Frank. He was later Preston Sturge's story editor at Paramount. The new Phantom of the Opera released Vitaphone style, sound on disc only, first screened in Dallas and Detroit on January 3, 1930. Avoiding big city reviews, it worked slowly through small and medium cities in February and March, not playing New York or Los Angeles until April. Economically engineered for $113,000, the Sound Phantom grossed $419,000, with a net profit of $123,000. For this presentation, Photoplay Productions have used electronic colorization to recreate the Hanshiegel effect and this final minute of the mass ball, in effect simile of the original lost Technicolor. But let's go back to January 1925. Phantom was booked to open New York City's Globe Theater, a legitimate house, not a movie palace, in February. A media blitz involved radio, the Saturday Evening Post, and electric light sign displays on Broadway. Mystery billboards of Red Death glowered over Manhattan. Several previews in Los Angeles did not go well. Audience response asked for less ghost story and more love story. And just who the heck was that Persian guy anyway? There was no tradition in 1925 of horror movies from Universal or anyone else. The picture did not ride nor would it establish a wave as would happen with Dracula several years later. An internal memo to the New York office summarized the concerns, quote, the ending is not logical or convincing. A monster such as the Phantom could not have been redeemed through a woman's kiss, nor could a girl who had witnessed his diabolical acts have been moved to kiss him merely because he drooped his head sadly. His death rang false. Better to have kept him a devil to the end." Unquote. Universal panicked. With an investment closing on $600,000 at stake, the Globe engagement was quietly canceled. All of the national advertising had pointed to a grand opening that would not be. February press releases stated that the picture had just completed shooting that week. 
a subterfuge to buy time. March rolled in like a lion, where Perjulian rolled out. General Manager Julius Bernheim was fired. After all the money and polish and crook-fingered airs, Lemley gave the Phantom over to Raymond Schrock, the 32-year-old producer of Hoot Gibson's Spook Ranch, simultaneously appointing Schrock Universal's general manager. He was another of the group who had been at Universal since 1915. For the past two years, he had written and supervised the Hoot Gibson Westerns, the most popular attraction in the studio's portfolio. Schrock, director Edward Sedgwick, and cameraman Virgil Miller ground out these five real sausages in two weeks for $20,000. Minimal investment, huge return. Lon Chaney's MGM release, The Monster, was opening just as Schrock slapped together a new script with a smokescreen title, The Phantom Swordsman. Chaney, now under contract to MGM, had to be borrowed back for a reshoot. How he must have bristled. He was about to start the unholy three for MGM, and here he was, back at Universal, bailing out Lemley's unholy mess. Here's the schlock according to Schrock. The first 10 minutes reshuffle old footage to set up the story. Once Carlotta is threatened, there is a new scene of the Persian with the prefect of police announcing that, for the present, my identity must remain a secret. Then we move on to the Chateau de Chagny, where Christine sings at a garden party. Raoul is introduced as an oversexed lout pining after Christine, much to the disgust of his brother Philippe. Another partygoer is played by Ward Crane as Count Ruboff, military attaché of the Imperial Russian Embassy. He too lusts for Christine. Chester Conklin is Raoul's drunken orderly, Chiche, who is smitten with Christine's maid, played by Viola Vale. Philippe breaks up Raoul and Christine's lovemaking and packs her off in her carriage, but not before we find Chiche and the maid making whoopee inside of it. Ruboff blows cigarette smoke in Raoul's face. The waltz we are listening to here in the synchronized sound version is titled Charming Episode and was composed as stock movie music by a young Eugene Ormandy, later the renowned conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Like the 1925 scores, the music recorded for the sound release was all pre-existing, with the exception of the Phantom Agitato, used for the unmasking and main title, which was custom-written for the picture by Russian-born Sam Perry. The discovery of Joseph's hanging body was originally positioned early in the film, soon after Bouquet's revelation to the ballerinas. It was moved to a late position in the story in 1929. It was also rearranged in Schrock's version to follow the garden party. Raoul then takes Christine out on a date, as the title tells us, to Montmartre, a rendezvous of the demi-monde. Chiche and the maid play chaperone. Amid the scum of Paris and a cheap bistro, they watch in a posh dance routine which Chiche mimics by roughing up the maid, who cracks him one. Raoul demands, serve our supper in the private room. Why can't we sup down here, whines Christine, to which Raoul sneers, come on, Cherie, let's stop pretending. Enter Count Ruboff, 
He pulls up a chair and tells Raoul that they certainly won't fight over any girl he brings to a place like this. Raoul belts him in the face and his pistols at dawn. Enter the Phantom. As one denizen of the Demimone to another, he beckons to a loitering Apache and stuffs a wad of money in his hand. Pointing to Raoul, he commands, he must not leave this place alive. Out comes a knife and the Phantom nods approval. The Apache advances on Raoul and suddenly it's a cowboy bar fight. As gendarmes arrive and restore order, the Count smiles at Christine and reminds Raoul, I shall meet you at dawn, Monsieur Lieutenant. I guarantee I'm not making this up. Comes the dawn and the duel. Christine makes a mad dash to the dueling grounds, cross-cutting to the presentation of revolvers, the pace-off, the dropping of the handkerchief. The shot is fired, Christine arrives, Raoul falls, Christine screams, Ruboff smiles, Raoul dies, or does he? He's not hurt, explains the Count. I purposely aimed at his belt buckle. The force of the bullet felled him. The Count congratulates the lovers and parts. Notice the dramatic flair that Cheney uses for a simple insert of his hands, the serpentine way they almost fondle the bottles, and the subtle indication by the pointing finger. Is there any doubt who was calling the shots here? The remainder of the Schrock version shuffles old footage with new. Philippe has Raoul locked up before packing him off to the Foreign Legion. Chester Conklin actually pulls the old file on the loaf of bread routine. Raoul makes the curtain in time for Christine's abduction, and in a new sequence, the Phantom trundles out on stage to snatch her. Raoul jumps from his box seat to battle the Phantom. The new finish, which remains to this day, has Eric flee with the girl by carriage, then trapped and killed by the mob on the embankment of the River Seine. This was always a movie in search of an ending. Should it be a whimper or a bang? The studio's first treatment of October 1923 went for the bang, simply having the Persian shoot the Phantom. An early draft had Eric dying in Christine's home after presenting her a wedding ring, quote, my gift to the little chap you love, unquote. The prompter is played by Czech actor Anton Verwirka, noted for portraying Austrian Emperor Franz Joseph in Merry-Go-Round and the Wedding March. Another early Clausen draft had the mob and the carriage ride, but ended with Eric dying in a fall from a building. At the last, Eric whispered to the Persian, all I wanted to Roga was to have a wife like anybody else and to take her out on Sundays. Schrock's reshoot script simply filched Clausen's old ending, substituting a beating for the fall and throwing out the sentiment. In the Los Angeles preview version, Rupert Julian had received three mentions. A Rupert Julian production on the main title card. A card for Robert Ross that billed him as assistant to Mr. Julian. And a solo card that read, produced under the personal supervision of Rupert Julian. The San Francisco credits document his downfall and the rise of God's new gift to cinema, Raymond L. Schrock. Schrock seized first position credit for adaptation ahead of Elliot Clausen and well above Julian's now diminished director credit. On a separate card, Edward Sedgwick received credit for supplementary direction and supervision. Tenny Wright, assistant director for the reshoot, shared credit with Robert Ross. Wright would later head the production department at Warner Brothers. Schrock's Phantom premiered in San Francisco on Sunday night, April 26th. This was like opening a play in New Haven before Broadway. The venue chosen for an exclusive four-week engagement, the Curran Theater, 
was not a picture house, but a legitimate theater. Two shows a day with legit pricing at a top of a dollar and a half a seat. With pomp and circumstance, the studio trundled the cast and Hollywood royalty up from Los Angeles. Reviews gushed and fawned, reading just like the planted publicity pieces they were. But one newspaper, the San Francisco Call, was not bought off. Quote, by the time the Phantom makes his initial appearance, reels of comparatively inconsequential events have wearied the audience. The story drags to the point of nausea. We greatly fear that an unkind fate is in store for the millions which are said to have been invested, unquote. Variety understood that Universal's future was riding on this night and diplomatically reviewed the gala event, not the picture. But they still slipped Uncle Carla Mickey, quote, beautifully produced, but the story fails entirely to bring out the necessary heart interest to make it a draw at the box office. The direction misses in many spots, and the story fails to hold the audience in the serious parts, instead bringing gales of laughter, unquote. Just who is this Persian? He wanders the perimeter of LaRue's story until the midpoint, where he explains himself and the Phantom. LaRue made Eric French-born and a grotesque from birth. He also made him a master musician, master illusionist, and master builder, a contractor of the opera house, which gave him the opportunity to build his chambers in the cellars. Persia was included on Eric's past itinerary, and there at the Sultan's court, he and the Persian became acquainted. Let's not forget, LaRue wrote potboilers, not literature. Clausen wrote an elaborate flashback in which the Persian is the Daroga, or chief of police of Mazandaran. Eric is court magician and executioner to the Sultan and uses his skill with a lasso to dispatch prisoners. Eric falls from favor and is condemned to death on an anthill. The Daroga steals out at night to rescue him and finds that the insects have eaten away Eric's face. Concludes the Persian, quote, later he took refuge in the opera to be near the music he loved, to hide his ugliness, to carry on his worthless life, unquote. Said Rupert Julian, quote, of course we cannot show, but only suggest anything horrible or morbid. We don't want to show the audience the torture of Eric, where the Sultan's minions tie him down, that ants may eat out his eyes, but still the audience must know what happened to him. It will be done, therefore, by suggestion, unquote. There's no better evidence of Rupert Julian's inadequacy as a director than this scene where the boys enter the trap door. It's a 15-foot drop to the cellar. Watch Rupert fail screen geography 101. Hand me the lantern, commands the Persian. Sure, says Raoul. Rupert Julian, master of time and space. Another suggestion was prevailed upon. Get rid of the flashback. Now Universal still had to get Eric a visa from Iran to Paris, so a stray line of dialogue placed him as chief inquisitor in charge of torture during the Paris Commune of 1871, when the unfinished opera building was used as a prison. Unless you have read the novel, this head of fire makes absolutely no sense. We can't blame Rupert Julian for this non sequitur. In Julian's Los Angeles preview version, this messenger from the shadows was identified as the opera house rat catcher. He's played by Ed Tracy. His face is illuminated by his lantern turned inward as he herds the rats before him. Elliot Clausen's scenario asked for this scene to be portrayed in a green tint with a red handshiegel effect on the neckerchief to suggest a decapitated head. Not only was this never done, but recutting of the picture left the rat catcher utterly unexplained. Notice that Raoul and the Persian clearly look down and react in alarm to something. 
and it ain't Mickey Mouse. Bad word of mouth spread in San Francisco. Attendance was pitiful. A week's gross was $5,800 in a city where a big first run picture should have drawn $20,000. But the four week contract with Homer Curran had to play out. Raymond Schrock was fired. He went over to Warner Brothers and they fired him too. Schrock's five minutes of fame was over and he would wind down his career with Gas House Kids, The Crime Doctor, and White Pongo. Did I mention the Persian pachyderm? A five-ton circus elephant named Minnie, former mascot of the Kansas City Shriners, had been purchased for the picture with the intent of parading her in a golden velvet howdah in the Persian episode. I don't know what's more awkward explaining how Eric got from Persia to Paris or how Minnie got from India to Iran. Both Minnie and Mazandaran were dropped in pre-production, but the eventual editorial changes that transformed the Persian into Inspector Ledoux offered no insights for why Arthur Carew has a fondness for mascara and Australian hats. that LaRue had given Eric was a talent for constructing illusions and torture devices, tricks that the Persian had witnessed at the Sultan's palace in Persia. This room of many mirrors is well familiar to the Persian. He knows both how deadly it will become and that there is likely a hidden trap door if only he can find it. John Sampalas plays Raoul's disapproving older brother, Philippe. Sampalas' role waxed and waned. As an aristocrat of the old regime, Philippe was omnipresent in the original filming to collect disapproval of Christine. In the original shooting, he followed the lovers to Viroflay to interrupt their lovemaking. Every time someone fiddled with a script, Philippe's part was expanded. For the reshoots made for the San Francisco world premiere, he hosted the garden party, seconded Raoul at the duel, then tirated against his brother. The New York final cut reduced Philippe to almost nothing. The part was then recast in 1930 for the talking version with Edward Martindale, who you can hear in the audio gallery. In the version we are watching, Philippe is introduced in the opening reel and then brought back, only to be killed by the Phantom in the last act. As the San Francisco engagement limped to a close in May, it was evident that the worst fear that writer Bernard McConville had voiced at the start had been realized. Universal had done it all right, they had botched the Phantom, big time. Lemley had the film sent to New York for a war council with his backers, the Cochran brothers. Director Lois Weber was asked to review the mess. A Lemley loyalist since the teens, her story sense was highly regarded by Uncle Carl. And ironically, Rupert Julian had made his first entrance to Universal City in one of her pictures. Throughout May and June, film editors Sidney Singerman and Morris Pavar 
trimmed the picture back to its original lines. They kept the two prefect office scenes with the my identity must remain a secret gag and the simplified explanation that Eric is an escapee from Devil's Island. They also retained the final chase ending. The titles were completely rewritten. But the botching continued as the Phantom embarked for Europe. James V. Bryson managed the European Motion Picture Company Limited, Universal's overseas agents based in London. Bryson sailed from New York aboard the RMS Berengaria with a print of Phantom in the hold, insured for a million dollars. Progress cables radioed Scotland Yard across the Atlantic. Bryson knew his ballyhoo. Upon docking at Southampton, he and the opera ghost were escorted to the train by a military band and 100 soldiers in Her Majesty's uniform. 50 of the soldiers continued on to Waterloo Station and proceeded in formation to Wardour Street and the offices of European Motion Picture. Handbills were scattered, a promotional banner unfurled, and newsreel cameras captured it all. Fleet Street had a field day. Why, roared the newspapers, was the British Army promoting an American motion picture? Excuses and dodges flew. Colonel Barrell, in charge of the territorials, muttered about recruitment drives and newsreels, disavowing any knowledge of the Phantom or any American film. James Bryson, too, pleaded ignorance. He knew nothing of the reception. Why, a junior assistant had engineered it on his own, and he would be sacked. Questions were asked in Parliament, and the War Office made out that Colonel Barrell had been hoaxed, despite the fact that European had paid his battalion 118 pounds to participate. Her Majesty's uniform had been insulted, the Crown affronted, and the local film industry, squeezed by American product, could get back some of their own. The British Cinema Exhibitors Association then convened in Glasgow, resolved that Phantom be banned from British cinemas. And it was. As Kevin Brownlow has noted, England was the distribution hub for the entire British Empire. The revenues thus lost likely exceeded a quarter million dollars. Why does Eric have two breathing tubes, unless he is hopeful that Christine will join him for midnight scuba lessons in the Black Lake? Carl Lemley kept his aplomb, determined that Universal remained the exhibitor's best friend abroad as at home. He declared to the CEA, quote, the square and right and just thing to do by the trade and the exhibitors of this country would be to withdraw our picture unconditionally. I don't know what else to say. We are willing to make the sacrifice. We stand for the good of the industry, and if a mistake was made, it is ours." Unquote. After a cooling off period, Lemley would twice appeal to the CEA in 1926 and again in 1928 to lift the ban, but it remained in force until the talking version was finally granted a visa in 1930. The dramatic melody we are hearing on the 1930 soundtrack is called Karma, written by the great Victor Herbert for his original score for the 1916 feature film, The Fall of a Nation. It quickly became a standard cue in compilation scores of the 1920s. After all of the hand-wringing and second-guessing, surgery and sackings, the Phantom of the Opera finally opened in the pouring rain at the Astra Theater, Broadway and 45th Street in New York City, the night of September 6, 1925. Predictably, reviews were mixed. Cheney and the physical production were lauded. Everything else was splattered with tomatoes, and the general horribleness was clucked over. The New York Times caught the ambivalent mood. Quote, 
It has been produced with a sort of mechanical precision. As it stands, it will strike the popular fancy. This is a well-dressed thriller with capable acting by the villain, a stiff and stilted hero, and an insipid heroine. So far as the story is concerned, it looks as if too many cooks had rather spoiled the broth, unquote. Variety detailed the backstage gossip the Times had merely hinted at, quote, there has been no doubt in the trade for some time that the bunch knew they had a bad boy in this one, but were helpless after the money poured in and had to go through with it. Shown some time ago in San Francisco to get a line on what they had. What they had didn't please them, nor San Francisco. It was then retakes were ordered. Placing the picture as a special on Broadway may tend to fool some exhibitors, but every exhibitor intending to play this picture should see it first in person before presenting this horrifier before his patronage. It's impossible to believe there are a majority of picture-goers who prefer this revolting sort of a tale on the screen." Unquote. But the picture was critic-proof, and audiences flocked to it. The final cost had come in at $632,356.72. Phantom earned just over $2 million in worldwide revenue. The $540,000 net profit it posted on Universal's books made 1926 their most profitable year of the decade. Photographed but deleted were Eric's illusions in this room of many mirrors. Staff cameraman Jerome Ash, an ace at trick shots, helped execute these effects, which Eric deployed to drive his prisoners mad. They included a wall of fire through which snarling lions leaped, and a sylvan waterfall that beckoned the feverish Raoul with false comfort. The waterfall was turned off after the Los Angeles preview, the lions and fire quenched by New York. This is another one of Julian's missed opportunities. It is not presented in any way that lets the audience feel the room's claustrophobia or the disorientation of the octagonal mirrors. The director is content to present it head-on from orchestra center. Gaston LaRue lived long enough to bask in the renewed celebrity the film brought him. He was a character of the fin de siècle, that blossoming of French society and culture that swelled in the twilight of the 19th century to be swept away forever with the onset of World War I. He was born in 1868, the son of a public works contractor in Normandy. As a teenager, he began writing and gaining publication for his stories and poetry. But his family had Gaston poised for a career in law, not letters. In 1889, he had earned his law degree in Paris when his father died. There was a million franc inheritance. LaRue grabbed with both hands the pleasures and debaucheries that beckoned a young man of means in the city of light. It took him only six months to exhaust his legacy. An attorney's life bored him, and LaRue became a journalist, covering melodrama in the theater and real-life drama in the courtroom. Gaining a position with Le Matin, a leading Paris daily, LaRue became a foreign correspondent, traveling the continent and Asia to report on war, intrigue, and the exotic. He continued to write, and his novels were successfully published. Largely forgotten today, his books were extremely popular in their time, and his 1907 locked room detective story, The Mystery of the Yellow Room, is still regarded by mystery aficionados as a major milestone. Most of his writings, including The Phantom of the Opera, were lurid thrillers. They ran as newspaper serials and were constructed episodically for this purpose. In the late teens, LaRue turned his hand to movies, even founding a production company in 1919. His vogue crested before the 1920s. Following surgery, he died on April 15, 1927. His books remain largely out of print today. It is likely that had Universal not filmed The Phantom with Lon Chaney, LaRue would have slipped into the obscurity reserved for all transient fiction writers. Only with the modern-day success of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical of The Phantom has LaRue become a household name. Even that honor had to be pursued and won. 
The producers of the play assumed the book to be free of all copyrights and denied Leroux billing or compensation. Gaston's old muse, the law, came to the rescue. There were indeed rights to be honored. His name was restored to his work and payments restored to his estate. The Lloyd Webber production would never have been but for the Cheney version. A screening of the silent film became the signal event for Sir Andrew and convinced him that there was life in the old ghost yet. shots of the mob gathering in the street and storming Eric's lair date from original production. Once in pursuit of the carriage, we are into the new material shot by Edgar Sedgwick. In our memory and in fact, The Phantom often seems the iconographic silent movie. But its physical survival is an interesting tale. In the early 1930s, Universal made available a number of their back library in the newly popular 16mm format. Their show-at-home library consisted of old favorites printed down to amateur gauge. Local camera stores stocked them for private rental. Phantom was part of that catalog in its New York general release version. The quality is none too good, but the version is authentic to the original release. But thanks to the enterprise of James Card, first curator of the motion picture collection at the George Eastman House, another Phantom survives. Its narrative diminished, but its pictorial quality intact. In October 1950, Jim Card commissioned a print of the Cheney Phantom from Universal International. This is the version of Phantom most often seen, including the restoration we are watching from Photoplay Productions. Like all of the Hollywood studios after World War II, Universal was re-engineering itself in an uncertain landscape. New economies included streamlining their operation. The huge block of silent product that was sitting in storage would never, ever have future commercial value. So believing, management purged everything without an optical soundtrack. Card's safety film print of Phantom was commissioned on the eve of destruction. It was probably the only negative still intact, not the 1925 original, but the foreign negative from 1930. Sections of the nitrate were already decomposing, and that alone would have earmarked it for junking. The original print is positively assembled, suggesting the negative had been left in tinting rolls. The titles are also spliced in, common for a foreign negative where titles would be kept separately and inserted in each territory. The Technicolor sequence was discovered separately by David Shepard in the 1970s. The edge marks tell us that all of the original production was photographed on Eastman Kodak stock and all of the new scenes from 1929 made on Agfa negative. Unfortunately, the print was made on a production printer of the 1950s set for the Academy printing standard with a soundtrack block that masked the left side of picture. Thus, the surviving image has a movie tone shape, roughly 1.7 wide to 1.0 high. This has been preserved in this presentation. That's why you see black bars on either side of the picture. A full frame transfer would have cropped off the top and bottom. For years, it was not understood that this copy was intended to have sound. Jim Card evidently clipped the production card from the main title. As it mentioned, Joseph Chernyavsky for music supervision, C. Roy Hunter for sound recording, and the conspicuously absent Western Electric sound system itself. The Eastman House print contains a bizarre prologue which has not been included in our version. In it, a character wardrobe like Florine Papillon 
sneaks through a catacomb and stops to address the audience in what was clearly spoken dialogue, filmed at 24 frames per second. The shadow of the phantom then passes through. There is no such sequence in the domestic talking version. It would seem to be the lone dialogue seen for Europe in 1930, which could be economically dubbed in each territory to fulfill the promise of talking. To confound this mystery, the show at home version included as a supplement on this disc also contains this character, but in different takes. But the show at home version is not 100% authentic, missing substantial footage at the head of Real One, which the collector who had owned it filled out from other sources. And no Lantern Man is indicated in any of the 1925 versions. The Phantom refuses to yield up all of his secrets. time the movie really comes alive in a kinetic way is this ending. Like tablets delivered by Moses down from the mountain, somebody has discovered that you can put the camera in interesting places and that you can actually create cinema with editing. The somebodies were director Edward Sedgwick and cameraman Virgil Miller. Sedgwick knew all about westerns, but comedy would become his niche. He directed Buster Keaton's best MGM pictures, The Cameraman and Spite Marriage, and Laurel and Hardy's worst Fox pictures, like Air Raid Warriors. Virgil Miller, he who must be blamed for undercranking this chase to the point of absurdity, became a specialist in mystery pictures, shooting the best of the Sherlock Holmes, Charlie Chan, and Mr. Moto pictures of the 1940s. always in search of an ending. Faithful as it was to LaRue, the original ending would be difficult cinema in skilled hands, and a Rupert Julian's leaden touch likely made of a thing of absolute farce.
Gibson Gallon was apparently unavailable for the reshoot, and another burly actor with a bad beard has been wardrobed like Simon Bouquet and placed at the front of the mob. This ending may be thoughtless in its conventionality, but Cheney's bravado as a performer allows his phantom one final magnificent empty gesture, one last illusion to prove he is still the master. Cheney's conviction makes it work, even though it shouldn't. By the time the dust settled in January 1926, Robert E. Sherwood offered readers of Photoplay magazine a thumbnail account of the Phantom's tribulations, which he credited with a wink to the Phantom Jinx, quote, as mysterious, as devastating, as fearsome as the very ghost, which is its own leading character, unquote. When shown at the Astor Theater in New York, the picture ran 101 minutes. That last minute was a happy ending, a coda of Christine Raoul, dredged up from the Vera Flay outtakes. That can go right out, declared Variety in disgust. And it did in 1929, ending for better or worse with bathos, bash brains, and bubbles. This is Scott McQueen.